0: Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to another episode of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. As ever, I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series, which covers the very wide range of topics impacting compliance officers in financial services firms. For this podcast, it gives me very great pleasure to introduce my colleague, Todd Errett. Todd is Senior regulatory Intelligence Expert for the United States for us, and he has a wealth of risk and compliance experience. Today, we're going to be chatting about the possible future shape of the US regulation for financial services and the associated practical implications for compliance officers. Now, I'm sure we all watch with great interest the presidential elections and the subsequent change of administration. Now, one of the many, many ramifications of a Biden presidency is going to be a change in the approach, the oversight and supervision of financial services in the US. And in fact, we have already seen changes or potential changes in the personnel at the top of the regulatory bodies. Now, what we've also seen is widespread concern expressed at the market volatility back in late January regarding GameStop. Now, for those of you not completely familiar with what happened, huge numbers of retail investors in the Wall Street's Bets Reddit forum, I hope I said that right, swapped tips and bought shares in GameStop. That demand caused the share price to literally spike with short sellers having to weather significant and unexpected losses. Now, a key focus for regulators right around the world is orderly markets. So the GameStop incident in and of itself may also cause a shift in regulatory approach. So masses to cover. So Todd, lovely to have you here. What does the regulatory landscape now look like for the US?
1: Uh, Thank you very much, Suzanne. I'm happy to join the podcast today. Um, the outlook, uh, for regulatory change and, uh, kind of the the new outlook for the U.S. financial services, regulatory framework and structure, um, is still, you know, quickly unfolding or evolving. Um, at this point, um, Gary Gensler has been named, uh, the, to be, uh, the new SEC chair, um, I believe his uh, hearings are scheduled for March second. Um, so, with him yet to take the helm officially, um, I think there's a lot of you know um, uh, assumptions that are being bantered about. Is you know what 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 is his new administration or the new? Um, Regulatory body going to look like? What will his priorities be? There, there's a lot of pontificating and just assuming and and guessing at what priorities will be at this point. But there's there's several things that we definitely do know based on his background and you know kind of the overall environment and the overall you know broader themes put forth by by the Biden new administration. Um, I I think there's going to be several areas that will be top of the list. Uh, ESG will be one um, in in environmental and climate change. Um, Gary Gensler also has been um, has been known as a tough enforcer. Um, He was um, formerly chairman of the CFTC post uh, financial crisis um, during the the kind of rollout and implementation of Dodd-Frank. So he is well known to the financial services community um, as you know, as kind of a, a, a tough enforcer. Um, but he's also a, you know very well respected from an academic standpoint and an experience standpoint. Uh, prior to his regulatory um, stint at the CFTC, going way back, uh, I believe he was a partner at Goldman Sachs. Um, so he's he's pretty well known um, and. Uh, I think his stance and his, his viewpoints are, are pretty, pretty widely understood. Um, that, you know, there's gonna be changes. Um, one thing that uh, I think will be a priority or a lot of people are anticipating under his leadership at the SEC is probably more or new rules and regulations uh, surrounding cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. Um, I think people view him as potentially crypto friendly Um, In that, uh, I think it was last year, he taught a course at MIT on cryptocurrencies and blockchain. So I I think he's viewed as a, um, you know, potentially crypto-friendly regulator. And uh, I think there's a lot of, there's a desire and a need um, in in most people's opinion, you know, for, you know, a, a more, you know, sound or rigid or formal regulatory um, framework surrounding cryptocurrencies. Um, investor protection, I think is going to be uh, another main, um, you know, emphasis. Um, they have indicated thus far that uh, Reg BI, which was a landmark regulation, kind of the hallmark of the, the prior administration uh, under J, J. Clayton's leadership, um, that Reg BI and the Department of Labor fiduciary rule which uh, pertain to retail investment advice standards. Um, Those rules will stay in effect. Um, They're not gonna completely try to redo the rules or propose new replacements for those rules. Um, uh, However, I think they've signaled that they are going to add a more rigid or stricter enforcement um, aspect to them in some way, shape or form, um, which I think will be welcomed by, by most participants. Um, you know the Department of Labor fiduciary rule. I think took, I think took almost ten years um, from start to finish before it was ever finalized. Um, I, I I don't think it's it's really possible to try to redo those rules all over again. Um, however, I think it is easy or relatively easy to clarify enforcement and make enforcement you know a priority. Um, I think there will be greater emphasis also on the Consumer Financial Protection Board, the, the CFPB, um, which many people was kind of view under the Trump administration and the prior administration as a little bit of an afterthought. Um, I, I think it will will definitely have a a, a greater emphasis um, under the new administration. So w- with that said, I think I've kind of touched on some of the priorities and what, what people think is going to happen with the new administration. but it we're We're still probably several months away before Gensler is actually on the job he's approved and on the job, and we really see what the priorities are going forward. Um, so, so so that's um, that's kind of the the overall kind of big picture um, view of, of of the regulatory environment, what we think we will see.
0: Thank you. And and I think for compliance officers, that sort of perhaps couple of months lead time before there is perhaps crystallization or clarity around the depth and the breadth of the regulatory change, I would suggest that firms could very usefully clear their decks so they are able, they have the resources, the time, the space, if they possibly can, so they can give that regulatory change real consideration when it comes out. I mean, the last thing anyone wants is bad regulation and you have to engage with it. that That's just not an optional extra anymore. You must engage.
1: Correct. And and in some of these areas, you know, let's say like ESG, for example. ESG has been something that firms have been working on for a long time. Um, and I, I know in, in the UK and the EU, there are more rigid regulations surrounding ESG. The U.S. thus far has taken kind of a little more of a hands-off approach and left it up to the participants themselves to define what is ESG and, and things like that. The, the, the firms, I think, um, are engaged and uh, are, are ready to, to jump into action. Um, you know, when, when and if you know, more definitive rules are proposed in, in these areas, you know, that, that being just one example.
0: Yeah, and, and talking of the potential for more definitive rules, um, let's shift gears a little bit. I mean, there have been an absolute swathe of hearings on Capitol Hill related to the GameStop debacle, shall we call it that, the market volatility and just that the, the sheer surprise, almost, the market was taken by. So GameStop, the political interest, Capitol Hill in full voice on the whole subject, what are the regulatory implications that are likely to come out of GameStop? And, and what might that all look like?
1: Uh, it's a fascinating um, discussion, um, and I, I've spoken basically nonstop for the last several weeks about GameStop with countless individuals, market participants, lawyers, uh, you know, people internally within Thomson Reuters, um, when, when the whole Surge in stock price in in GameStop first began to unfold. Um, I, I personally kind of dismissed it. I said, "Oh, well, it's another short squeeze. Uh, short squeezes happen all the time." And you know, for those that are not really um, fully understanding what happens, is you know, what when when investors you know, trade these stocks. There, There's always buyers and sellers and short sellers, essentially what they do is they borrow shares, they sell it and they, they create an obligation for them to buy it back in the future at some point, hopefully a lower price. So in effect, they're betting on a stock to go down. Um, there was this, a relatively sizable short position in GameStop where investors were, you know, skeptical of the future prospects of the firm. And it wasn't just GameStop, it was probably more than a dozen um, different stocks that that, that this happened. The GameStop kind of stole the headlines um, because it just, it, I think the the magnitude of the move in the stock was was probably the greatest. Um, I, I think the stock went essentially from $40 a share to, within a matter of a week, it spiked to, I think the high was $480 a share. Um, that type of volatility has happened in the past. And, and uh, you know, that's, I, I wanna start by saying that th- this is not something that's completely new to the, to the financial markets. Uh, My first reaction when somebody pointed it out and asked my opinion, I said, well, it's no different Um, what happened to Volkswagen in 2008. The shares of the price of Volkswagen stock in in Europe, in Germany, um, went from, I think, the equivalent of about 20 euros a share to approximately 900 in a matter of two or three days. And that was at the peak of the financial crisis in 2008. Meanwhile, General Motors and Chrysler were on the verge of bankruptcy. And and you have now all of a sudden, for no fundamental reason whatsoever, Volkswagen shares went up, you know, know, essentially 20 or 30 fold. And what happens when something like that occurs is anybody who is short that position Essentially, gets wiped out. the The losses are so great, so fast, that because they have to mark to market constantly the value of those positions. That liability basically explodes, you know, infinitely. Um, you know, I, I experienced it firsthand. One of my colleagues that uh, that I worked with at the time, at, when I was this was pre my years at at Thomson Reuters, I, I I saw exactly what happened firsthand. And there's little or nothing that can be done. Um, You know, risk controls, even if you try to, you know, minimize the risk or minimize the damage, um, when when securities move that fast and that fierce to that magnitude, there's little that can be done.
0: So does that make the case for the circuit breaker there? I mean, not only obviously what circuit breaker for when the prices go up, but in addition to when they go down, just to kind of cool the market off?
1: Um, yes, I, circuit breakers were, were enacted uh, in, in the trading of GameStop. I, I don't recall off the top of my head if, if they were active or used you know, in the Volkswagen example that I mentioned before. But it, the problem with circuit breakers is sometimes it'll slow the trading, but it doesn't necessarily you know, fix the, the overall problem. It's when you've got short sellers who are experiencing losses, they have to buy. And they they need to buy essentially any price to minimize the losses that they're incurring, um, and all of that just kind of still continues regardless. Uh, it doesn't fix the supply and demand, uh, you know, issue and. You know a circuit breaker will pause but then essentially oftentimes you get the next gap up to the next level almost almost instantly so it's it's a a kind of sh- very short-term temporary band-aid on on a, on a structural problem that that uh, you know it, it, there's little that can be done about it it's it, these are temporary supply and demand um you know issues in the marketplace with a particular security Um, The interesting thing that makes GameStop and and this whole, um, uh, you know, recent activity and event that occurred different is the retail investor component to it, where I, I think it's widely assumed and understood that there are whole new, you know, huge number of retail or shall we say novice investors. That are entered into the marketplace, that that are following now advice that's being posted, you know, in social media um, channels on the internet, um, you know, the Reddit. They, they're almost treating it as though it's a game. That that seems yes. to be this one of the slightly
0: scary implications and, underneath. And
1: and that, and that it, it's like it's not real. It, it, that's correct, and that's that's one of the issues. Um, I I think there are probably nearly a dozen different potential regulatory outcomes that come from this sudden surge and then ultimately a collapse in GameStop price where you saw the stock go from 40 to 480 and it's now back to 40. Um, You know all that happened within you know 10 days time roughly. Um, There are a lot of newer or novice investors who shall we say got convinced via messages on social media or what have you to to you know buy stock um it, it the issue is a lot of people wanted to say that's market manipulation or that is collusion uh, under uh, under the regulations and the way the laws are written it's very hard to um call this manipulation or collusion because there is not false information being posted. This is a very loosely affiliated group of people on a message board and most of what they were saying is simply free speech and it's not a lot different than you know a Wall Street analyst at a at a large brokerage firm issuing a price target and a buy recommendation on a stock because a lot of frankly what was posted in these in these uh, chat rooms is, you know, buy it, buy it, buy it, hold. You know, it's going. GameStop's going higher, and that's that's all essentially free speech, and um, it it would be very very difficult to, despite the SEC or the Department of Justice, um, whoever tries to investigate the. The the connection to tr- between trading activity and posting on social media, um, th- there's a lot of needles in that haystack um, to connect all those dots. And the the the, abil- the law the the law enforcement and regulators do have a very good ability to do that. However, much or most of what was posted simply wasn't wasn't false information, and um, and it wasn't a a concerted planned effort in in the sense of a traditional pump and dump type scheme that have happened throughout history. so the the market manipulation aspect of it i I think is going to be a tough case for for regulators to really drill down on. Um, I think there's a realization now, though, that, we can no longer ignore social media. And everybody's radar really needs to be heightened um, in monitoring these things. And I think since then, um, the SEC has announced that they have halted trading and several other um, stocks that they started to see things happen where essentially you were talking about penny stocks of, of nearly worthless companies that suddenly saw surges in volumes for some reason um, that may have been triggered by you know online chat rooms. Um, where the the regulars have have put the brakes on it. But I think the bigger issues that really came or will come from GameStop um, and the move. This came out in the congressional hearings that were held last week. Um, They really drilled down, I think, despite some of the political theater and lecturing and grandstanding from many of the politicians, I don't expect Congress to do much on this. The regulator is going to have to um, be the key, you know, the key um, regulator and enforcer who's who's going to actually affect real change here. The areas that really kind of were were unsurfaced in the congressional hearings were um, the brokers from Robinhood, um, which did temporarily halt some activity in some of the stocks, it became pretty clear that uh, their trading halt they imposed was was because of their own capital requirements. Um, they oh, so no, we're
0: not talking investor protection from Robinhood. We're Correct. talking protecting their own balance sheet.
1: Several uh, several brokerage firms routinely, regularly, um, limit activity of their customers in volatile stocks. Um, you know, there's a lot of retail-facing uh, big brokerage firms out there in the United States that prohibit their customers from buying junk bonds, penny stocks, or volatile, or risky, or whatever. They, they have restricted lists that are very, very long at many firms that just say, no, you, we're not gonna let you buy that here. You wanna do it, you do it elsewhere. you're not gonna do it through our firm. So that's common. Um, some of the biggest retail facing firms, uh, let's say Schwab and Fidelity and Ameritrade, um, what they did um, was uh, they limited uh, the ability to buy these stocks on margin, um, which I think is is a very, very safe precaution that firms m- make is you don't want an investor or a client uh, speculating in, in such volatile securities with borrowed money. Um, that's protecting the investor and it's also protecting the brokerage firm because the brokerage firm ultimately is the one who lends them the money. Um, and if they view it as, you know, too volatile or too risky, you know, both of them are at risk. So, you know, the margin requirements and margin restrictions um, are, are very common steps. However, Robinhood's steps to restrict it don't appear to be based on any investor protection aspects. They were based on their own financial predicament that they were in. They did raise more than three and a half billion dollars from their investors, um, you know, on very short notice. Um, and they basically kind of admitted that uh, they didn't have the regulatory capital needed to settle these trades. So it, it, it sh- also shined a light on, you know, the whole trade settlement process. Um, and I know there is talk now, um, it, you know, T plus two, should we go to T plus one or should we go to same day settlement? I, I think that will be, will be, you know, thoroughly considered um, and looked at by the regulators. Um, I remember when we went from T plus five to T plus two several years ago, hmm. um, it, it took several... And, and do you remember the carnage that happened afterwards yes. in the back offices
0: as they tried to deal with it, all of that? It was
1: a technology heavy lift. Um, uh, I, I <laughs> That's a polite way to put it. I, um, so I, I, it seems like that is what I think Robinhood is trying to deflect the um, its own scrutiny or problems or potential problems saying it was a, a structural issue. It was all, if, if this was same day settlement, um, this wouldn't have happened. Um, I, I'm a little skeptical of that, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens in that, in that area. I think the other bigger issues um, that was really uncovered is what's known as payment for order flow. Um, Payment for order flow has gone on for decades and it it dates back way back one of the early pioneers of all people of in payment for order flow was Bernie Madoff. It was the only legitimate business that he ran was his market making business, Um, but he was known to pay for order flow. Um, And essentially as a market maker, they they pay a a fraction or, you know, literally hundredths of a penny back to per share back to the firms that route the order to them for execution. Um, I don't think people really understood or understand, you know, payment for order flow and how it works in the greater system of, of trade execution uh, across the entire U.S. equity markets. Um, I, I think uh, Ken's, uh, Ken Griffin from Citadel in the congressional hearings tried to somewhat explain um, his firm does pay for order flow and they are the largest Market-making firm that executes I, I think greater than 50% of all orders um, so it, It's interesting in that in reality when it comes down to the retail investor who buys a hundred shares of a stock for a few thousand dollars the amount of money it's being executed commission-free well we all know and we've even taught our kids you know that nothing in life is free there's always a hidden cost somewhere somehow some you know in some way shape or form the the actual cost to execute a commission-free trade is literally hundredths of a penny that is being rebated back through the payment for order flow from the executing firm back to the brokerage firm you know on a three thousand dollar trade it might be a dollar thirty or it might be, you know, 83 cents, or it, it might be a very, very, very small amount of money. But when you're talking billions of shares, it adds up to be real money. Um, I think there will be an enhanced scrutiny of payment for order flow in a, from a macro perspective. And is this being adequately disclosed to investors? And do investors really understand that it's not commission-free. And there is a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of money that's exchanging hands behind the scenes on the execution of these orders. It's not to say that it's a good thing or a bad thing, it's just the way it is and it's the way it's always been. Um, and I think there will be you know, enhanced you know, attention or emphasis or scrutiny, potentially regulations. I don't think they can undo it um, and do away with it. Um, it would disrupt too many business models. It would, it would also potentially disrupt, um, you know, overall liquidity and trading. Um, it's, it, 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 it's a complex challenge, um, that, that I think will, will be one of the main focuses. Um, another area that I was surprised, um, I, I thought initially going into the the congressional hearings that hedge funds and short sellers would be vilified. Um, I, I think they, the the hedge funds that were kind of caught in the middle of this because they lost so much money. Um, I would say they basically got run over by a retail army of traders, and uh, they they came through the the congressional testimony, uh, I, th- I think, pretty well. Um, they weren't. Uh, you know, singled out as, as badly as I expected them to be. However, I think from a tax perspective, um, the new Biden administration and people will look at uh, the carried interest tax loophole that many private equity venture and, uh, and hedge funds do avail themselves of. Um, I think that's, it's, it's low hanging fruit or an easy target um, for, for, you know, the administration or and regulators to go after, particularly, you know, that's a different discussion, though, it's a tax Mm. issue. Um, But it's a tax
0: issue that might change those hedge funds business models um, because Um, they would have to find income elsewhere.
1: Well, I I don't think it dramatically changes their business models. I think it's, you know, it's a tax hit. Um, Mm. It's, you know, are are you a lot of times the, ex- the, the carried interest loophole allows them to essentially to defer ordinary income to long-term capital gains status and you know, call it, save themselves you know, 20% on taxes. Uh, you know, it, it, and that's real simple, rough math. Um, you know, if you're normally taxed at 35 or 40% and you're able to defer income and call it capital gains um, and pay long-term capital gains tax at a 15% rate, yes, you're saving you know, 30% on taxes. Um, it, it's not, it, it's a personal hit to those partners, general partners of those uh, investment vehicles, more, more than anything. Um, and I, I, I do see that as, as, like I said, a, an easy target going forward. Um, the other couple of areas that I think will be scrutinized is, um. The companies themselves, um, GameStop in particular, and I saw it in the news uh, the other day, the GameStop CFO resigned. Um, GameStop as a company, as a publicly traded security, their board of directors, their CEO and CFO saw their stock price go from $40 to $480 a share. And in many cases, in almost all cases, these companies were, let's say, struggling companies. One of the other companies that made similar moves was AMC movie theaters. Well, in the midst of a pandemic, AMC movie theaters are not doing well. They are struggling. Um, You know, nobody's going to movie theaters. Um, AMC, on the other hand, uh, did issue both stock and bonds. And uh, as their investor appetite for their securities, for whatever reason, you know, you know, peaked and spiked, um, they were able to, you know, essentially tap the capital markets and raise capital from a business perspective. Um, GameStop did not do that. Um, Whether they felt they were, you know, caught between a rock and a hard place, if they issued securities potentially at a artificially or too beneficial of a price, they could potentially face, you know, investor lawsuits um, you know, class action lawsuits. Um, however, I, I I viewed it as they have a fiduciary obligation as a board of directors and a CEO and a CFO to take advantage of advantageous stock prices to you know fix a balance sheet that was potentially you know in need of fixing or remake their business model. Um, you know, they, they have an obligation to their shareholders, first and foremost, and their company to do what's right by the company. Um, to have not issued any securities, um, I think people will, um, will will question, you know, what were you thinking? Why, why did you or did you not uh, do what you, you know, maybe should have done? Um, and I think... It's a very difficult question, um, and potentially there there could have been legal ramifications and regulatory ramifications on either side. Um, so, so that's just one other area. The SEC, in the midst of all of this, did warn companies. You'd be very careful if you're going to do a, what they call, at the market or ATM offering. Um, companies can very quickly or easily file what they call a shelf registration statement um, to issue additional shares and basically sell new shares um, directly into the marketplace. Um, those ATM offerings are very common, um, very routine, um, routinely done in the United States. Um, why GameStop didn't do one is is really surprising. The other major issue um, that I think will come from the GameStop debacle and congressional hearings will be investor protection. Um, brokerage firms have a duty to protect their investors. Um, And I mentioned that earlier, you know, some of the firms, you know, limited marginability and and some firms, you know, frankly, just restrict trading in in volatile securities like this all the time. Um, I, I think what has come out, though, is there have been a lot of novice investors who did ultimately, you know, buy GameStop at $100, $200, $300, $400 a share and have now lost money. Um, and frankly didn't realize how quickly you can lose money. Um, Call it the gamification of investing um, is is a term that's being bantered about. Uh, This is not a game. It's not a video game that you play. um, And you shouldn't make it out to be a game. Um, You know, you're investing and you're investing hopefully for the long term or you are trading, you you know, with an objective and risk controls in place. there are a number of uh, stories uh, being told and uh, both anecdotal evidence and actual real cases. A lawsuit was filed against Robin Hood from the family of a, of a former customer who committed suicide last year. Um, a young college student thought he had lost $700,000 when he in reality hadn't. He didn't understand what it was he was doing. Um, he had put on an options uh, spread trade Um, which raises the question of an option disclosure document. Um, In order to trade options, you have to read and understand the the option disclosure document and attest that you understand what you're doing. Um, Something like that shouldn't happen, and uh, it's tragic, um, you know, when a young individual takes his own life because he thought he lost money that he didn't even lose. Um, I I think that will... that's not something that gets swept under the rug. Um, people will will take a much closer look at the gamification and investor protection aspect of all of this when you have novice investors, um, you know, potentially attempting you know complex strategies. Um, so, so with that, um, you know, I'll throw it back to you, Susanna. Um, any any thoughts or questions from you? Yeah,
0: I mean the, the the yeah the oh gosh, so many. We could talk about this for absolutely ages, but. I suppose the bigger picture question, um, and focusing on the market volatility and particularly the investor protection piece. I mean, it's the U.S. leads the world in in so many things, and it's certainly very influential in the sphere of financial services. GameStop, in particular, or the GameStop experience in particular, and the backup of the Biden administration's focus on investor protection. What's it likely to be? What's the impact elsewhere in the world? I mean. Will that drive global regulatory change do we think
1: I, I i think it's it's safe to assume and and I think some of the regulators um particularly in europe um have looked at um at uh, what has happened and they have said that they are monitor, monitoring closely um it's it's not something that other countries or jurisdictions around the world can can ignore um it's it, it's too big of an event um, to to simply uh, you know pass over or or not uh, not act on um, because I think uh, European and and uh, international regulators you know share in the same belief that investor protection is important um, it, it you know to to halt or limit or um, require you know, more stringent safeguards is is certainly a possibility. The one thing that I do believe the U.S. may look more closely at, and this is another potential regulatory um, change, is uh, short sale notifications and transparency. Throughout the EU, um, there are much more rigid um, uh, disclosures, public disclosures of existing short positions. Um, that do not exist in the United States. Um, I would not be surprised to see the United States follow the European model, um, requiring more um, more thorough or more detailed disclosure of short positions. Um, which, you know, I don't think is actually a difficult regulatory um, challenge for the U.S. because there is a there is a pretty uh, thorough and detailed uh, you know structure in place uh, throughout all of Europe.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a watching brief on, on so many levels with all of this. Now, we're, we're somewhat running out of time here. Um, so, given all of that huge discussion and given all of the huge implications potentially that we need you know, a bit more line of sight to, what are the takeaways or suggestions now for the compliance suite?
1: I, I think most essential, any compliance department can, can look at what happened um, with with regards to GameStop, and there's there's got to be an acknowledgement this this will happen again, and therefore, are we prepared? And um, what what are the actions going to be? You know, for for the next GameStop, um, you know, from the margin restriction, trading restrictions, are our investors, you know, understanding the risks? And you know, from a trade settlement and from our own capital perspectives, you know, are we rock solid? You know, from a uh, trade settlement and capital perspective, to to accommodate these, I think there's also the question of, of technology. Um, can our systems handle? Um, I, I know almost all of the major brokerage firms, the, the retail-facing brokerage firms, experienced either, you know, slowness, difficulty. Um, um, you know, calling in, you know, long wait times, um, you know, sluggishness of technology um, when systems get overloaded by too many customers. So I, I, I think there's a lot of different aspects that, that firms really need to try to get their arms around. Um, that was one of the other big criticisms labeled against Robin Hood. Um, the individual who committed suicide last year evidently emailed their customer support desk three times and got automated replies back, called two or three times and left voicemails and couldn't get a human being on the phone. Um, that's a problem. Um, so I think from a compliance and uh, from an overall business perspective, brokerage firms can't let that happen.
0: Todd, thank you very much. That was a fascinating conversation. And, and thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. I do hope you found it both interesting and useful. Now I'm going to put a couple of links to articles by Todd in the episode notes so please do follow those up. Also in the episode notes will be the usual download link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence. And always last but not least we would very much appreciate it if you would take the time to review the podcast and please do let us know any suggestions you have for future topics. Goodbye. Compliance clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.